Exodus 7, starting in verse 14. So the Lord said to Moses, Pharaoh's heart is hard, and he refuses to let the people go. Go to Pharaoh in the morning, when he goes out to the water, and you shall stand by the river's bank to meet him, and the rod which was turned to a serpent you shall take in your hand. And you shall say to him, The Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me to you, saying, Let my people go, that they may serve me in the wilderness. But indeed, until now, you would not hear. Thus says the Lord, By this you you shall know that I am the Lord. Behold, I will strike the waters which are in the river with the rod that is in my hand, and they shall be turned to blood. And the fish that are in the river shall die. The river shall stink, and the Egyptians will loathe to drink the river, the water of the river. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Say to Aaron, Take your rod and stretch out your hand over the waters of Egypt, over the streams, over the rivers, over the ponds, and over all their pools of water, that they may become blood. And there shall be blood throughout all the land of Egypt, both in buckets of woods and pitchers of stone. And Moses and Aaron did so, just as the Lord commanded. So he lifted up the rod and struck the waters that were in the river, in the sight of Pharaoh and in the sight of his servants. All the waters that were in the river were turned to blood. The fish that were in the river died. The river stank. The Egyptians could not drink the water of the river. So there was blood throughout all the land of Egypt. Then the magicians of Egypt did so with their enchantments. And Pharaoh's heart grew hard, and he did not heed them, as the Lord had said. And Pharaoh turned and went to his own house. Neither was his heart moved by this. So all the Egyptians dug all around the river for water to drink, because they could not drink the water of the river. And seven days passed after the Lord had struck the river. This is the very word of God. Amen. You may be seated. Father in heaven, Would you send now the quickening work of your Holy Spirit to illuminate this text for us, that we may receive it and grow thereby for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, this evening, we're going to see how the Lord is really going to begin to fulfill what he has declared several times already to his people, that he will deliver his people, that he will make himself known. He will make known his sovereignty And he will actually do a very incredible thing, which is he will draw out more so the glory due his name by hardening Pharaoh's heart and thereby more so revealing his glory through plague after plague after plague. And in our passage tonight, the Lord begins what he said he would do if we look back to Exodus 7 verse 5. Just a few verses back, the Lord said he was going to do this. He said in verse 5, And the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord when I stretch out my hand on Egypt and bring out the children of Israel from among them. So in our text today, we see the first plague. The first plague upon Egypt and the demonstration of God's power. So we see Moses give, God gives Moses very, very detailed instructions, actually. He says, first of all, go in the morning and go meet Pharaoh there at the river. Apparently, in the mornings, Pharaoh would go out to the river and tell him this, the Lord God of the Hebrews has sent me to you saying, let my people go. And the Lord says, the point, the whole point is what? So that by this, Pharaoh, you shall know that I am the Lord. 
by this act, by what you're going to see happen, you shall know that I am the Lord. This is really what we were just singing about in Psalm 118 and Psalm 2 as well. And this is the main expression or purpose in God's work of this particular judgment, is so that Egypt will know that he is the Lord. God's made it very clear. In fact, he just tells Pharaoh directly, I'm doing this blood thing to all of your water so you'll know that I'm God. And this is really instructive to us to understand the overall purposes of God. It is his glory. It is his, it is his, it is making his glory known. It is his majesty. It is his sovereignty over all. And of course, as his redeemed children and followers, that becomes our purpose in life as well. That is our calling, as it were, to live for God, to live for Christ. Paul, Paul said to live is Christ. In other words, we live to make God's glory known to the world. And we do that according to the number of days that God's given us here on earth. So once again, Moses and Aaron work cooperatively together. We've seen them do this before. We Pastor Sriso talked about this last time too. We have Moses, but then he, he, he has Aaron who actually executes a lot of the work. But they obey God and do exactly what God commands. Aaron lifted up the rod, struck the waters that were in the river. And he, he did it, kind of, you kind of get the idea he did it right in front of Pharaoh. It's like Pharaoh's standing there. because so It says he did it in the sight of Pharaoh, in the sight of his servants. And all the waters in the river were turned to blood. What else happened? Fish died. I'm sure the river stank. It says it did. And of course, you can't drink blood. That's going to be gross. But this was an incredible plague. And I want to, I want to pause for a minute to us just think about, think about if this really happened. Okay? <laughs> think about if all the water turned to blood. Um, and, and I want us to understand the significance of this plague in two regards. Firstly, the magnitude of it. And secondly, what it meant to the Egyptians. That, that's, who, that's kind of, God, this is what this gift from God is for. It's, it's, not, for the, it's not for the Hebrews. This is for the Egyptians, right? It's like, this is, the, this is for you guys, so that you wake up and know that I'm God. Okay, so firstly, what is the magnitude? Let's think about this, the magnitude of this plague. Well, we all know that all the water in Egypt was turned to blood, right? Even verse 19 says, even in buckets and pitchers, right? So like if you just had like a cup of water, I guess, boom, it's blood. Okay, so that's pretty significant. But notice the, the, the primary body of water that's noted here is the river. It's referred to as the river. What river is that? The Nile River, right. So this is like the main river. Now, the Nile River is huge. Anybody been there? Okay, I'm neither have I, but it's huge. It's two to five miles wide, okay? And it discharges, I looked this up, an average of 100,000 cubic, cubic feet of water per second, okay? And just to give you an idea of what, like, what that's a big number, well, Niagara Falls only discharges, or falling over Niagara Falls is only 80,000 cubic feet per second. So this is way bigger than that. So we're talking a lot, a lot of water. But the other thing is its, its effects. So all this water, 
it's, all this water is now just basically not really water. And you know blood. Blood's not like as viscous as water. Blood's kind of like sticky and weird. So the fish die. The, it must smell horrible. And the main thing is there's no more water to drink. No, I mean, this is not a time of indoor plumbing. So this is pretty significant. So this is really incredible. And you know what I love the most about all these plagues, but this one really catches our attention? There is nothing they can do about it. Like, think if they had all the money that the United States of America has. You, you can't do anything about this. All, I mean, just like every little cup, every, everywhere there's water is turning to blood. That's incredible. No matter what they do, there's, there's, nothing, there's nothing they can do to fix this. And so again, it's just the immensity of it tells us God is saying again, Egyptians, you shall know that the Lord is God. You shall know this. Okay, secondly, here's the second thing I want us to understand about this plague. And that is what it meant to the Egyptians. What did this mean to the Egyptians? Well, it had a lot of significance to the Egyptians. First of all, the Nile was critical to just livelihood, right? I mean, it it was, it was not only a source of water for drinking. It was probably their primary source of water for drinking. In fact, some commentators would say that's why Pharaoh went down there in the morning, was like to drink, to get some water. But also it was for their agriculture. It was the fertility of the land. It was really essential to economic livelihood. It's how they transport things. Um, it was, it, now it's just all gone. It's just blood now. It's just a mess now. But, but more importantly, the Egyptians actually gave spiritual significance to the Nile and the water. They actually saw the Nile as like a god. And, and, and that the, the, the Nile itself uh, became a, a sort of almost a passageway for, the, for their gods, for their other gods to prosper. Like, we've got to have the Nile. That's like the main god. And then our other little gods, you know, can prosper. So this was not, this plague was not, I just, what I want you to understand, it was not just a utilitarian hardship. It wasn't like a logistical issue. It was a spiritual issue, as it were, for the Egyptians. It was affecting hearts and minds, we could say, and it really attacking their very belief system. In effect, it was like the, he, the Hebrew God was coming and just killed their God, is basically what he did. He, he just stomped on their God. And again, the beautiful part is there's nothing they can do about it. So we see that they resort to like going and basically digging new wells to try to find water for the next seven days. So again, the, the whole point of this plague is God to declare to the Egyptians, by this you shall know that I am the Lord. So this was a miracle of significance and uh, much magnitude, but more, more importantly, it was a tremendous blow to the Egyptians and really a foundational way where God showed his power. I mean, wow. This, we couldn't even do this if we tried. 100,000 cubic feet of water flowing per second. I mean, that's just a lot of water. Um, so, so this is obviously something only God could do, supernatural act. And uh, we then see, of course, in our text that uh, after the blood devastation, the magicians of Egypt tried to do so with their enhancements. And so... The magicians, as we saw before, they tried to do that with, uh, we talked about that a little bit, with, uh, with the rod that became a snake, and the snake ate, his ate, snake ate their snake. But the interesting thing is that we see, of course, that they're limited, right? Because they must have done some hocus pocus, but 
they apparently weren't able to change all the blood water back into clean water, right? And so this actually further hardened Pharaoh's heart. And the conclusion is that the Egyptians, as we said, were just basically forced to go find other water elsewhere. Um, As I said, the Egyptians dug all around the river for water to drink because they could not find water from the river. And seven days passed after the Lord had struck the river. So this, this went on. This went on for seven days, such a significant, colossal plague, and nobody could do anything about it. So what I'd like to actually just, that's pretty much a covering of the text, but what I'd like to do is really talk about what we can learn from this today. What is the the instruction from God's holy word of this first plague for us today in our lives? Clearly, we have the historical redemptive picture that we know God is building up to here, which is the picture of the gospel in Christ. And we also see God setting forth his power, his might, right? That he is the only true and living God because he has ultimate superiority over any man-made false god, the false gods of the Egyptians. And this is is important to, to remember because You remember the Egyptians at this time were quite prosperous. In fact, they were quite wise. They they had a lot of resources. They had a lot of land. They had all these slaves, million-plus slaves. And while we know that God is our provider, right, we know God is sovereign as as Christians, the godless don't know this. They, 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 They don't know that God is truly sovereign over all. Otherwise, they'd probably believe in God. So this is the this is the Egyptians this is the, their position right they they don't trust in God they don't believe in God they have all their gods and really of anyone who does not believe in the true and living God what are they going to put their hope and trust in well something else right we would call them idols or some other god right they put their hope in like in America we, we, if we were godless, we'd put our, money, our, our hope in money. We'd put our hope in pleasures. We'd put our hope in idols. We'd put our hope in escapism, maybe. We'd put our hope in the, the, the love of men, reputation, pride. But the, the, the situation for those who, who deny God will do whatever they can to maintain and increase their happiness through stuff and experts that validate that belief system, right? Because have you ever thought, now we're all redeemed believers in Christ here, hallelujah, but have you ever thought how savage and vicious it must be to live a life without God? That's a hard life. That is an incredibly hard life. Consider, you sit there and ask yourself, why do I exist? There's no answer. There's just no answer. Why were you, why was I born in Colorado and not in Saudi Arabia? Random chance. It must be a torturous existence. There's no hope in it, right? Let's say, have you ever thought, let's say you're godless, you deny God, and your, your beloved one is very sick in the hospital, and you go to their bedside. What do you think? What do you do? You, you don't pray because you don't believe in God. What do you think? Do you just go, well, I hope they survive, I guess. I guess I'll just hope the doctors do a good job. 
What a torturous way to live. No hope. No, nothing, nothing bigger than yourself. This is the ultimate self-salvation that, of course, is completely fruitless. But we know that we trust in God. We know God is with us. We know he is over all. We know he is, he is con- in control of all, and he has the best for us. But, but a life without God is utter hopelessness. And it's actually amazing to me, think about it, that there's not a higher suicide rate among the unregenerate. Because there's no hope in life. And all of the stuff that they hope in, money, pleasure, and really experts to validate that mindset, we know is fleeting. And for the Egyptians, those experts were the magicians. The magicians were supposed to be like, hey, help us figure out what's going on here. So they turned, apparently turned some of, some of the other water into blood or made it appear so. But again, they could not cleanse the bloody water back into pure water. And therefore, they were exceedingly limited. And it's the same way today, isn't it? The godless world lives for its idols. If you are a person made in the image of God, who is designed and framed to worship God alone, and you go and deny your creator, you deny the free salvation brought by Christ, and you, will, and you go worship something else. Those that deny the true and living God will find an idol to worship, right? They will find something else to bow down to, something else to live for, something else to give their energy, passion, love, time, resources to, and that is false gods or idols. And of course, we can see this is exactly what happened with Pharaoh. His heart grew hard because he loved his idol. He believed in idol, and I think for Pharaoh in this case, it seemed to mostly be control and power. Because he, he had a lot of control over all these Hebrews, and he started to see that it was being effective. But don't we see this in the world today? It's really unfolding in our culture. You know, people just, the, the mindset, perhaps it's quite rampant in America now, I want what I want, and so I'm going to go look and listen for others that will validate that truth for me. And they will say, yes, you're right, you can have whatever you want, right? You want more stuff? Uh, here's a credit card. Just go buy whatever you want. You, you, you don't want to regret, you know, selfish living? Uh, you know, just here's a drug that will ease the pain. Uh, you have temptations and you're not sure what to do about them? Then sure, you can just change your gender, I guess. You can just be whatever you want. See, this is, this is godless idols feeding the desires of the flesh. And it's, it's an imprisonment. It's, it's really a harsh jail master of idol worship. And I must tell you that I actually remember this bondage because I, I lived 21 years of my life denying God. And I remember in my teen years, I actually remember, I remember where I was down in, in Colorado Springs and I was driving my car. I was probably about 16, 17 years old. And I remember denying God. And I was like, there's no God. There's no way there's any God. And I realized, wow, this life is all I've got. <laughs> you know, like, I better make it good. I've got a probably uh, 60, 70 years left to go. Like, I better accumulate as much stuff as I can. I better have as much fun as I can. I better get as many people as I can to like me. Because after this, it's over. I just die like a dog and nothing happens. That is the godless life. And it's so hopeless so hopeless and it's absolute bondage there's no freedom in it there's no liberty in it although that's what it promises 
It's a life of chains. Because the godless life is nothing but a rat race of just chasing after the next material thing or after the next emotional high or after trying to get some approval of man. It's just hope in limited and temporary things. And I say this in part because there are some, even in the church, the wider church, that will say God's commandments are just, oh, they're just strict. They're, you know, the God, God's boundaries are too, are too intense. They're too restrictive. God's word is just a, a bunch of rules for me to follow. Well, we know that that is not the right attitude. Because firstly, the truth is that bondage is living for yourself, right? But Christ came to break the chains of serving ourselves, and so the next material possession that you buy to satisfy yourself will only satisfy you for about an hour or so, and then you'll want something else, right? Um, the captivity of needing another escape or another, another recreational thrill is just so limited. It's, it's sort of a slavery of just needing another thing and another thing. But true freedom and liberty is found in God through the saving work of Christ, where we can only find true joy and true commitment because we realize it's by God's free grace that we live. It's, it's, by, God's, it's by, by God's free gift that no man may boast. Of course, secondly, we must remember that God's commandments are the very best for his people. They're the very best. They're not a restrictive list of rules to follow. In fact, we need to step back and approach the gospel of Christ by faith so that we see his commandments rightly, so we can rightly believe and receive and love his commandments. And that we, then we will willingly and eagerly and gratefully keep his commandments because of our love for God. As Jesus, of course, said, if you love me, obey my commands. And of course, that's what we hear. We've been teaching through Psalm 119, and you hear of this heart of gratitude, of God's precepts. In verse 44, it says, For I have hoped in your ordinances, so I shall keep your law continually forever and ever. I will walk at liberty, for I see your precepts. I will speak of your testimonies before kings and will not be ashamed. I will delight myself in your commandments, which I love. My hands also I will lift up to your commandments, which I love. And I will meditate on your statutes. See, this is the complete opposite of idol worship. This is a righteous love for God and a love for what he loves. And we know that, even by the very first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. And this is really the point that God, the Lord, was driving home to the Egyptians. You shall have no other gods. Not the Nile River or any other gods. You have, not the cats, right? They worship cats, which, okay, cats are okay. But you can't make them a god, right? No, he said, I will destroy them. If you have any other idols, I will destroy them. And this is exactly what God was doing in the first plague. He was powerfully declaring, no false gods will compete with my sovereignty over this nation. And by this, you shall know that I am the Lord. Not some false god of Egypt, but only the true and living God of the Hebrews. And we remember this from Deuteronomy 10.17. It says, For the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords, 
the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality or takes a bribe. I like that. Our God is, he's the God of gods. Little g, gods. So while the Egyptians, while Pharaoh and the God God deniers of the world worship false gods, our God is waging an extraordinary war against idols to powerfully display that he alone is sovereign over all. And where does this war ultimately triumph, do you think? In the coming of Christ. The coming of Christ, which is why we must remember that our conquering king, Jesus, it's not like a quiet movement. It's not like an underground, passive, like, idea. No, the gospel, as we've said before, is not a suggestion for mankind. It's a commandment, right? All of God's moral law, by way of his imparted truth, is for all mankind to submit to and to follow, which is exactly what we're saying in Psalm 2. Hey, kings, take heed, give ear, be warned. You are to follow this truth. And it's an important consideration um, that I'd like us to, to really consider. You might be wondering, you might, still might be wondering how we're going to work John the Baptist from Luke 3 into this. But I think this is instructive to us Do we believe that God's truth, that God's law, that the gospel of redemption is something the whole world should hear and come under the authority of? Or, as more and more of the American church is saying, if someone out there doesn't believe in God, that's fine. You know, we we can't require them to believe in our God. I mean, maybe they have their own God. I mean right? Can, can we just let them do their own thing? I mean, we're, we're the church. We can believe in our God, but we, we don't need to impose our God upon other people, do we? Or is the truth that God's word and God's moral truth is to be inculcated into every aspect of this world, into business, into government, into community, into family, Is it true his kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven? Well, let's see what the word of God has to say about this question. And it's said in another way, what does God, what does God or who does God want to know that he is the Lord? Does God want everyone to know that he is the Lord or just his elect? Well, Paul in Romans, of course, says, for I am not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Peter in Acts said, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. And Isaiah said, seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near, let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord that he may have compassion on him and to our God for he will abundantly pardon and the, but the primary example I want to use is John the Baptist from Luke 3, as our brother read earlier. And I'm going to reread this small portion uh, from Luke 3 and listen to what John the Baptist does. Very significant. Referring to John the Baptist in verse 18. And with many exhortations, he preached to the people. Okay. But Herod the Tetrarch, being rebuked by him concerning Herodias, 
his brother Philip's wife, for all the evils which Herod had done, also added this all above, that he shut up John in prison. Did you catch that? John the Baptist rebuked Herod. Because Herod, what did Herod do? He broke biblical law. And John was compelled to let him know. And of course, we know this ended up getting John imprisoned, which then ended up getting him beheaded. But under the law, Herod committed at least three sins and was actively committing these sins. Number one, he committed adultery by seducing a married woman. He, secondly, he divorced his wife without due cause. And three, he married his brother's wife while his brother was still alive, which is wrong according to Exodus twenty twenty one. So John the Baptist just comes out in the midst of preaching, of course, about the coming Christ, John the Baptist also condemned the wicked just fearlessly. John proclaimed the truth of God's law to this civil leader, as it were. In a way, John is saying, Herod, you can't do that. You cannot corruptly make up your own rules. And, and by, because by doing so, you're denying God. You are living for your idols, just like Pharaoh was. John is proclaiming that the Lord is God. And John made it known to Herod and to everyone that the Lord is God and his laws, his truth, cannot be defiled. And so this is what God was doing with the seven plagues. As he said, and the Egyptians shall know that I am the Lord. And it's an interesting consideration. You know, here was John the Baptist had a very particular specific calling, right? Very from birth, had a very specific calling, right? To, to make the way. But, but he's preaching about the coming Christ, but he also is calling out this basically civil leader for wickedness. And we need to consider that in our lives, right? What role, what role do we, I mean, covenantally as the church, have a role in that regard as to, uh, to, to, to conform uh, basically everything that's going on in this world to, to God's law. So just as John the Baptist did, this is, our, this is our calling. We know this. We know we are called to proclaim to the world the truth about God. We're, we're called to tell the world that, that, that the Lord is God, that God is sovereign over all, and he's, he's more powerful than anything, and a life that denies God is just a dead-end life. Right? There's no, it's no life at all, in fact. It's spiritual death, we know. But we proclaim repentance for, for God has sent a redeemer, a rescuer, and a savior through Jesus Christ. And of course, this is the truth of which all men must come under and upon which all will one day obey. Right? For at that time, the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and under earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. And this is the truth that we are called to proclaim and live it out with our lives. This is God's truth. So by way of application, I think it's important we remember that you know, we're, we're not called to just isolate in our holy huddles, as it were. Our brother's prayer was, was spot on. But we're to go and tell the world, really, our, our, through our words, through our lives, through our hope, through our trust and faith, that the Lord is God. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you for this word tonight, and we thank you that you are sovereign over all, that you are 
the God of gods, all other gods. And we thank you that your sovereignty, your triumph, your conquering, coming, and thriving kingdom, your rule and reign is so evident. Oh God, would you give us ways and means, opportunities, that we can proclaim the excellencies of your goodness and grace, that we can declare uh, the, the truth about the redemptive work you have done, the rescuer, the savior you've sent through Jesus Christ that man can repent and turn to for life. Oh God, open the doors that we may uh, be part of your kingdom building work in this way. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand.